0: Plus. Welcome
2: to the New Books Network.
3: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Rabbi Ari Kahn about his new book, The Crowns on the Letters Essays on the Agadah the Lives of the Sages, published by OU Press and Kitab Publishing House in 2020. Rabbi, Ari's Khan, Rabbi Ari Kahn's The Crowns on the Letters represents a major achievement in the study of the lives of the Talmudic rabbis, as well as in the study of rabbinic agadah. This work is an immensely learned and deeply creative interpretation of many fundamental agadot related to the intellectual biographies of the Tanaim and amoraim, including Hillel and Shammai, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rish Lakish, Rabbi Yochanan, and many others. Additionally, it covers agadot, dealing with major themes in Jewish thought, including the nature of the oral law, mysticism and its perils, the messianic era, repentance, and the land of Israel. Rabbi Kahn, welcome to the show.
1: Nice to meet you. Thank you.
3: Rabbi, I wonder if you could give us um, a little bit about yourself.
1: Okay, originally come from America from New York, grew up in Brooklyn. My father is a uh, rabbi and a clinical psychologist. He at this point is retired, lives in Israel. Um, my mother, when I was young was a housewife, but she uh, went back to work when we were uh, not all that old and uh, what can I say? I was privileged to be able to, study with really some of the leading rabbis. I, I studied for three years with Rabbi Soloveitchik, another four years with Rabbi Lichtenstein, with Chakamah I had the privilege, and, uh, and I studied Judaism both in terms of rabbinical school, and I also studied academically in uh, graduate school. So I've always had this combination. Just one thing which may be interesting is that while my father also was a student of Rabbi Soloveitchik for over 40 years, he would go weekly to his class. My mother actually had been a student of Heschel at uh, one point. So uh, there was this, uh, I would say, different types of, uh, of approaches which would probably meet at the Shabbos table.
3: That's great. Very, very interesting. And if we go to the book itself, so how did you come to write the book?
1: Well, if you read the introduction, I don't want to put you on the spot. If you read the introduction, this was a book that I would have thought would have been the first book that I would have written. It was something which was within me for a very long time. The The study of Agadot intrigued me. The ideas behind it, sometimes the people. It was interesting that when I wrote the book and then when the publisher got it in their hands, they changed the focus. Uh, to be more biographical about people, which wasn't something that I had thought as much about. It was really something which emerged that the, the, the people tend to come to life in, uh, in my various writings because I'm, I'm interested in them.
3: So I think before we dig in, and I, I did read the introduction, <laughs> no worries. Um, and, and one of the things which I think we should lay out on the table and, and explore, or just give a definition for, is agada. So I've mentioned agada. We've mentioned that as a term. What exactly does it mean? What is the definition of the term before we kick it off?
1: So the truth is, it's a great question and far more difficult to answer. Some people would say that agada is the non-legal parts of the Talmud. I don't believe that's really a good answer. The word agada is similar to what we're familiar to with Passover, Haggadah, you should tell your children. So Agadah is something which is told. So in a certain sense, Agadah and Midrash have a similarity to it. It depends how technical we are in our usage. But in, in a really simple sense, the Agadah is the stories in the Talmud. And the, the Talmud has stories. The The problem with the definition of, the, of saying it's non-legal, as some do, is that sometimes there are legal sections which have stories, or there are laws which are going to be impacted by stories which were told.
3: So, so you mentioned in the intro- introduction, you say, for as long as I can remember, I've been enchanted by Agadah Midrash. So where, where did this love affair begin?
1: That I'm not sure, to tell you the truth. In, uh, in classical yeshiva, they tend to skip these sections. And it could be that I like stories. I mean, again, I think back about uh, what I said before about biographies. I definitely loved reading biographies when I was uh, when I was young. But it was the stories which I found interesting. What I did in the book is I tried to sometimes find different pieces of stories and put them back together again. And uh, that took some work and took some thinking. And there was some uh, construction which was taking place. So my, my connection to it was also for a second reason, and that is that very often within these stories, you're gonna find what I would call pure Jewish theology, which means the stories weren't told simply because they had to fill pages. It wasn't like some publisher said, you know, to the Talmud Bavli, you know, we don't have enough pages over here, we need some, you know, fill in. It wasn't fill in. And if the stories are there, then arguably there's a reason for it. The Rambam, for example, are claimed that in every chapter, The stories there are about things in that chapter, and then you have to work hard to figure out what it is. So I really felt in my own learning and sometimes in my teaching that if I wanted to get an idea across in terms of theology, let's go and look for a core story which tells over or grapples with some of these issues, and that's how some of it also came about.
3: So you're the rabbi uh, of a synagogue, or at least you were uh, according to the book. I don't know if that's still the case. I am, and uh, as well as an educator. So I'm curious, with these different hats on, are you teaching the texts in different ways, in the same ways, using different methods? H- how do you go about that?
1: It depends on the context. It depends on, you know, what is taking place at this particular point, what I'm trying to do, which means correct. If it's a Friday night, you know, uh, shorter Torah. then it may be a little different than what I'll do in the university. But I will tend to teach in different places. I could teach the same kind of thing, but it really depends on what that particular context is at that time. You know, when, I, when I'm when i invited to speak in different places, I always ask, who's the audience? How much time do I have? What kind of level are they on? And then I'll think about the right way of doing it. But I will teach same ideas in different to different levels of, of audiences, but I'll just have to present it slightly differently.
3: So looking at the audiences themselves, so we know that the rabbis note that one can learn a great deal from one's students. So how, from teaching these ideas, from having the book be written, how, how has there been a back and forth? What, what have you learned from your students in order to f- develop your own ideas?
1: Well, one of the things with the students is, is I put questions and I put a framework in front of them. So in a sense, the dialogue is going to be one which will be controlled and contained, and it's not going to fly in all kinds of different places. But once I raise questions and raise problems, then we'll see different individuals and different generations of students. I'm, again, I'm old enough that I can speak of that generations when I've already taught people and their children then uh, or children and their parents. Then over the years, also, people tend to look at things somewhat differently. You know, Time moves on and... Uh, and by raising problems or raising questions and having students then suggesting certain ideas, that will certainly uh, take place.
3: So one other audience that you mentioned also in, in, in the introduction is, is your wife. Yes. And, and and you say as well that there is this cliche, uh, certainly in Jewish books, to, to thank one's wife at the end of an introduction, which makes a lot of sense. But, but you know that, that in your case, it's not a cliche. So I'm curious if you can elaborate a bit. Were there specific texts that she, she helped you think about? Were there specific instances in which she helped clarify certain ideas? We'd love to see if there are any examples that we, you can give.
1: Well, well, first of all, my wife is very smart. Secondly, she improves all of my writing. So I will uh, you know, give her full credit on that. Secondly, when I, it is a cliche, but this is my 12th book. And I did not write it in that particular formulation in the other books, even though I've thanked her in every single, in every single one of them. What would very happen, often happen is that because of different situations, she will end up sitting in the lecture or, or certainly in the written work. And uh, she will then go over and we will discuss and uh, she will help clarify and help make it better. Again, to to get the particular examples of it, I'll I'll certainly say it's in terms of language and I'll certainly say in terms of presentation. But uh, sometimes, and I wrote about this actually in my first book, it was once she said to me that she just felt that learning should be a revelation, and that was something which very much struck me. And, and, and that was a conversation that took place before we were married when we were walking, going on a walk someplace. And it very much struck me in terms of the challenge of an educator. Again, not every class, not every advertorian, not every situation lends itself to it. But there should be a, a ha moment, which means think about it what's our competition? it's 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 mass media it's television it's movies and so on and there is going to be a certain amount of entertainment that takes place so now am i an entertainer no i'm i'm, I'm an educator but there has to be something which is going to be satisfying intellectually and perhaps even emotionally in terms of what's taking place in, in my lectures. Again, that's, the writing is a little different. But in the lectures, my students know that sometimes I will go on for an hour and a half and they have to pay attention from the beginning to the end. And I'm going to re- it's going to be like a mystery. And, and there's going to be something that we need to solve together. And I'm going to put the pieces out. And sometimes, till they actually all get put in, together in the proper place, and you have that aha moment. So then, uh, then it's very, very satisfying, and then they get very moved. And I'll say that all goes back to to Naomi—that's her name—by making that observation that that's what learning should be. Rabbi Salavajik actually once said something similar when he said that in all learning that takes place, there should be this element where you have a relationship or connection with the divine. The words he used when I learned Torah, he said, I feel the breath of eternity on my face. So I think a lot of us can study and not, and can feel completely disconnected. I mean, I think we both understand that in any given yeshiva, you can have people, two people discussing and learning together, chavutah, learning together about two people pulling one garment. One says it's mine, one says it's mine, and God is no longer in that conversation. All they're talking about is them and the garment, and God gets, God gets expelled from the Beit Midrash and from the discussion and even from the Talmud. So that idea of trying to bring something divine back in, I think is uh, or a revelation taking place, I think is an incredible challenge.
3: So building upon this idea, we, you note in the introduction um, that you read these texts and you continue to read these texts and there's this process of, of rereading that, that you continue to read these texts throughout your life and throughout your teaching career. So either with specific examples or just the, the general idea, how have you changed and, and how have has your understanding of the text changed throughout your your thinking about these texts, throughout your speaking about these texts, and throughout your writing about these texts?
1: Well, One of the things that I constantly try to do is to check myself and to make sure that what I'm saying fits into the words. I don't want to force myself... In terms of interpretation, I wanted to be there, but sometimes as you're reading it, you'll notice something that you just somehow missed before. I'll give you one example of, of that happening to me. We were discussing the one of the, the famous agadot of Moshe Rabbeinu wandering in Troy Kiva's classroom. Now, there's all kinds of challenges in that, and it's wonderfully disturbing that the, the whole question which is raised by that. It's very daring teaching. And one of the things that happens is that before he goes there, God says to him, talks about the crowns and the letters, which is actually the, the name of the, of the book. And he said, and, and Rabbi Akiva questions God, says, sorry, Moshe questions God and asks, what are these crowns for? And he says, one man will live in the future. And, but the words that he used is that he's going to expound tele Tilem Shehalachot. Now, a tell is, is a mountain. And it took me many, many years just to stop and say, hold it a second. Instead of translating as, let's say, English translation does, mountains or heaps or piles of, uh, uh," say, hold it. Why do you use the word tell? And the word tell is something which is built on previous generations. Which means part of the philosophical problem which is raised by that text, how is it possible that Akiva knows more than Moshe? Because if Moshe doesn't know Jewish law, then, you know, what is the authenticity? And yet, nonetheless, Akiva gives credit to Moshe. But here, we're staring at us from the very beginning, where it says that he is going to interpret which means it's not something from nothing, but it's something built upon Earlier strata of information, just as you know, a modern city can be built upon the tell of the previous city, and that struck me, you know, many many years after I studied that text.
3: This, this story that you mentioned, this Agadah you mentioned, as well as other ones in the book, focus on the character of Rabbi Akiva. Mm-hmm. And you you note that you've got a certain affinity to Rabbi Akiva, you got a certain connection to him, perhaps a special connection, um, whatever that might be. What 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 is your connection to Rabbi Akiva? How do you how do you view him? How do you relate to him? What can we learn from him?
1: I think he was a Jewish hero. I think part of the greatest message that he gives us is that he can fail and get up again. You know, I I think growing up in a in a post Holocaust generation, I was born in 1960. So, and that actually didn't strike me till fairly recently when I started, you know, counting, I was born only 15 years after the Holocaust and many people in my class, anybody who was, who had European parents, it meant that they they were survivors. And yet in those days, nobody talked about it, but people who would have given up. And, and that means in every single sense, religiously, emotionally, and just say, you know, how can I go on? One would not judge them. One would understand them. And to see that Rabbi Kiva could have lost so many students and nonetheless starts all over again, I think that's an incredible testament to the man. But on top of all that, we always seem to see him with a smile on his face. We never seem to see him upset. We see him talking about love, talking about respect. We see him caring so much. And I don't want to ruin the book, but I go into more details about certain things that he did, which I think that we survived today because of those decisions that he made.
3: I want to go back a little bit to uh, different hats that you wear, uh, both as an educator as, as well as a, a rabbi. And within the rabbinic career, of course, there's there's a sermon, there's educating, there, there's moralizing, there, there's speaking about things in a general moral type sense. And then, of course, there, there's the halakha, there, there's the Jewish law aspect. And, and you said as well that... There, people try to make this bifurcation between Agadah and Halakha, but of course, it doesn't really exist. They're, they're, they're connected in some ways part and parcel. We need both together. So within your own career, how have you melded and molded these two things? Do you bring Agadah into your Halakha decision-making? Is it something which will remain separate? How do you put these two in and bring these two together?
1: For the most part, they're, they're, they really are separate because the rules of interpretation work a little bit differently. Which means how to figure out what the halakha is and how to figure out what an agadah is teaching are not necessarily the same rules, even though obviously once you have a toolbox, you're gonna use the toolbox in any way that you can. But there really are separate I, I, again, just the way that it works is gonna be is gonna be a little bit different. But you know, do you actually use one for the other? Let, let me put it this way. I think that halakha ultimately has to be something which has to be very much down to earth. There's real people, real decisions, real lives, and it really has to be down to earth. On the other hand, studying of agadah, which is ideas, is something which helps us reach up into the heavens. So in a sense, if you have a Jacob's ladder with its feet on the ground and its head up in the heavens, I would say the agadah helps you get up into the heaven while the halakha lets you come to the ground. And for me personally, I'll answer what you didn't really ask. And that is, how does it impact me? I need both. I need to be involved in both because if it were only the ideas, the lofty ideas, and never really you know, down to earth, then I think something would be lacking. But if you're only down to earth, but you never get to reach towards the sky, I think there's also something lacking. You know, again, in terms of my own identity, my own uh, development.
3: And if we get a bit into the, the process of the books, some more into the actual development of how you wrote the book. So you, so you said that there is some differences between the initial thought of the book and what you thought it was going to be, and then what it became and, and what the publishers molded it into um, in terms of having it be more biographical and, and bringing the stories to, to build a biography of the rabbis. So what, what was that process? What did the book look like at the beginning and then how did it mold over time and, and through it and with the hands of the publishers?
1: Okay. With, I'll go. I'll work backwards. With the publishers, it wasn't so much as changing it, rather it was identifying what I had done and then presenting it in that way, which means the lives of the sages as a as a subtitle was not in my original subtitle. So therefore it was really revealing something which I had done. My own process is going to include study, reading a text, reading the text carefully, thinking about the text, and then searching for parallels, looking for other places that talk about the same idea, looking for other places, let's say, where the same characters are involved that may shed light on this particular story, looking at classical commentaries, which means the, the going back from the Rishonim all the way to modern scholars, looking at academic works as well, if there's an issue in terms of textual variance, even though I did not get into that more than I felt was necessary. I didn't want to get lost in that, but there was a sensitivity to it if there were, were issues involved. And I, I I would like to think of myself, maybe someone would say I'm not enough, I would like to think of myself as being very thorough, that uh, I would go so far as to say that even if somebody doesn't like my conclusions in the book, they're going to have to contend with my sources that I brought and uh, and use them when they reconstruct what they think that it says. So I... I and, and then something else happened. As... I noted a lot of these ideas I've been working on for a while. I mean, I could tell you just between the two of us, if no one else is listening, that uh, I've been going, I've been learning Dafyomi. I don't know if to say. I've been going through, I've been learning Dafyomi. I would say um, not the greatest investment in terms of my own time and my own day, but I've been learning Dafyomi through a number of cycles writing. But I will say that at least one, maybe two of the cycles I went through after my book was already written. And therefore, then checking through every single page in Talmud to make sure that this works. Sometimes, then adding a footnote. Sometimes clarifying something. But um, I, I don't know how many people can say, "Yeah, I wrote a book and I checked every page of Talmud to see how how this works in terms of the uh, the larger the larger literature."
3: So you just mentioned about sources of so the sources that you used that you looked at in order to write the book. I'm, I would love to speak about the. The structure of the book. So the book itself, of course, there's an introduction, and there's 13 chapters which discuss different paracobes, different parts of the Talmud, and different agadon, and building a biography of, of different rabbis therein. But the thing I find very interesting is that there's really a three-part type, three-part type um uh, development or, or structure of the book. So you've got the text of the book itself with with the chapters. You've got the the footnotes, and then you've got after the chapters sources, sources in Hebrew, original source texts, which one could go to. So, how did you think of of this develop of this type of structure, and then how do you think that this structure can be used by different readers? Okay,
1: first of all, the credit for this goes actually to the editor or the editors of the book with OU Press who felt that the footnotes were really too much. So then there was a decision to try to divide them. Now, let me add two points about it. One is this is not a book that you just simply sit and read. Well, I guess somebody could, but it's not what I wrote it for. It's a book which is much more studying or learning as opposed to just reading, which means it is 13 different passages of the Talmud and sometimes within that one passage there'll be another 12 passages that you need to study in order to understand that first passage so it's not just reading it's learning then i also decided along the way that there may be other people who would want to use this book to teach not just to study but they'll use to teach and therefore aside, the division was text and on the Text itself I tried as much as possible to put everything in in English, including the original sources, but I also wanted the original sources were there because I think that when we trust translations, we tend to lose something. So anybody who's capable of reading the original, I would have the original and then a translation. And that took actually a lot of time to work on the various translations, the various parts. Then the footnotes were right there in order to explain some of the ideas in the text itself. The end notes at the end of a chapter were there to make it more robust. It was, okay, once we're already down this street, realize there are these other issues that have to be taken into account, which were a little bit too heavy for the footnotes, but the person who's really interested, intrigued, and is, again, especially the person who wants to understand this topic as much as possible or potentially teach this topic, then those end notes are going to help them uh, incredibly.
3: And if we think about these 13 chapters, there's so much information there. There's so much that, that you've got. But of course, with any book, with any editing process, there's certain things you need to leave on the editing floor. So what were there certain passages that you had to leave out due to space? Or more broadly, how did you decide to include these and to exclude other ones? Well,
1: actually, I there was a chapter that didn't make it, which subsequently made it into a different book that I uh, that I published. It was. And, and what was interesting about that one, once they focused on rabbinic biography, there was no biography in there. There was no main hero in that chapter. So therefore they felt it wasn't there. And there may have been other reasons because that one actually dealt with a little bit with what I would say science. It dealt a little bit with evolution. It dealt with the 974 generations of prehistoric man. And maybe maybe that was a nice way of them not wanting to get too uh, involved in uh, in such a discussion. But as I said, it made it into one of my other books, which is called Explorations Expanded on the Book of Bereshit. The what I what I did over here is there were a number of chapters that dealt with Torah Shabbat with the Oral Torah. So there you have this Moshe and Rabbi Akiva, and there you have Beit Shammai, Beit Hillel, Elu and there you have Lobishama'i Shammai, Rabbi Lezer, and the rabbis, which means those are all, in a certain sense, interconnected, dealing with different facets of the same type of problem, and each one of those chapters help the other ones of those chapters. So therefore, if you're asking, could I have then released a book just on those, maybe that would have been smarter. I could have had volume one just on those topics. Once I got to those topics, the next one about L'Azib ben Arach, which really follows the Rabbi Lezer and the Chachamim rabbis, but moves a little bit more towards mysticism, that then starts the next part with Ben Azai and then the four went to Pardes, and and with Elisha ben Abuya as well. So, so all of those then tended to kind of work together. Once I got to Lisha Ben Abuya, Akher, and dealing with the idea of Tshuva, then there were a couple of other chapters that dealt with Tshuva, and that was with Resh Lakish and with Lezim and Durdaya. So therefore, what you notice is that each time there are these mi- mini sections, but one part of the section, kind of leads on to the next kind of the section. And then we got to uh, Rebbe Kiva and Rebbe Kiva students, and the uh, redemption, and, uh, and so on. And the, the final chapter was uh, the chapter about Rabbi Zera, which which uh, as opposed to all of the others, which I over the years tended to teach a number of times, actually there's one exception to that. The chapter on Benazai, I, I don't know how many times, if at all, if I ever taught it. But it, it was something which I do, I, th- I think it's unique, and I think it gives a lot of information, but I didn't teach it because of complications in teaching that. And the last chapter of Rabi I only gave that talk once, which was on the 30th anniversary of our living in Israel, I gave the talk on uh, Rebbe Zera, a man who moves from Bavil and moves to, to the land of Israel, and uh, certain experiences that he goes through. So I thought that was a very good metaphor for the the move that that our family had made, and live in Israel. So that was 30 years. That was a couple of years ago. You can already begin to guess how long we've been here. So the book had actually, therefore, was a lot of interconnections between the various chapters. And I think that there was a satisfaction for the reader to get a sense that even though that chapter ended, the ideas are still continuing and I'm learning more and it gets a little bit more filled. So therefore, it's not just 13 separate chapters because of all of the interconnectedness between them.
2: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
3: Going back to this idea of biography. So I think that some want to argue that trying to present or to build up a biography of Talmudic sages is very difficult, or some would even argue it's impossible. Jacob Neusner would say perhaps this is an impossible endeavor. So you've clearly did not take that approach, and you tried to build or develop some degree of biography for these rabbis you included. But what were the challenges? Was it difficult to, you didn't write a biography, of course, but was it difficult to build this biography, to develop it? How did you go about that that process?
1: Well, in in a sense, what I'm doing is I've never claimed this is what happened. I'm claiming this is what we see. It's kind of like telling me, you know, what if we got to meet the real Mona Lisa and she looks nothing like this? It doesn't really make that much of a difference because all of us have gotten to see the Mona Lisa, not that I'm comparing my book with Mona Lisa, but you it aren't, Eventually, is what people take of it and what people see. So, therefore, I never really dealt with the question of quote unquote truth, what happened over here, but rather what we can see when we take a look at a passage, and eventually, especially if we look at the vantage point of a couple of different scholars looking at that same passage. So, or looking at various passages dealing with the same person. Now, as, as you're correct, Professor Newsner could have said that what I'm doing is, is, in a certain sense, artificial, because, you know, this is the view from the third century in the land, you know, someplace in Kumpadita, and this is the view coming from Israel from hundreds of years before, and therefore, you know, what's representing truth, but that's not the issue. I'm saying from a rabbinic perspective, what is the character of Rabbi Akiva, or for example, as is taken for, uh, for the reader who's looking at in the 20th or 21st century? So we're looking at the piece of, uh, at the art.
3: When you research the book, of course, there are so many sources that you're looking at. There are many approaches that you were dealing with. And as you've said as well, these are things you've been teaching for, for many years, but were there any specific surprises that you came across, things that you're, you didn't think necessarily could be the case, certain approaches that you didn't think were out there? What, what were some of the things you were surprised by when you were researching?
1: That's, that's also a great question. I think, you know, if you think about uh, the school of Hillel and Shammai, there is this temptation to say that they really got along and everybody was okay. And then there are passages that don't say that. Including passages that indicate there was bloodshed between the two of them, which really explodes this uh, idea of everybody getting along. And then the question is, how much do we take things at face value, and how much do we take things on a a relative level or on a on a symbolic level? So that that then became the challenge in terms of understanding what is being communicated, which which is ultimately the challenge of every step of the way was interpreting words which are being said. And therefore trying to say, okay, what is this ultimately trying to communicate to me? But yeah, I think that that one specifically about bloodshed between Beit Beit Hill and Beit Shammai, I I found very jarring.
3: These texts are not only ones that that you've seen many times and and you've spoken about many times, but I think a number of the stories, some more than others, are ones which the general Jewish populace or or the general, at least semi-learned Jewish populace, have have seen before. They've they've heard them being discussed in sermons. They've, They've heard them. In, in school, in, in yeshiva, whatever it might be. But I think that sometimes when we think of, of, of these stories and we hear them so many times, we don't necessarily get the full picture. And I think that in some ways could lead to misconceptions, not a full understanding. So are, are there any specific examples you can think of from these stories, these better known stories that people don't quite get or, or they've understood wrong? They're, they have certain misconceptions about which you have or can clarify by, by your book.
1: Yeah, I think the chapter, for example, on... Uh elo the elo these and these, you know. Continuing with the Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai thought, I think that most people translate these and these are the words of the living God, and therefore both sides are right. And one of the things that I showed is that a lot of medieval commentaries didn't understand it that way, including Rashi. They rather would have translated it as these and these, not are the words of the living God, but these and these are the living words of God. And I was actually very pleased to find one of my teachers, Roy Lichtenstein, translated that way. That was actually a very confirming moment when I saw that. But I already had understood it from reading the, the commentaries. Uh, adding on to that, the concept of Eluva Elu, you know everyone's entitled to their opinion, which may be a very postmodern understanding, and going back and thinking, hold it. Authentic Judaism, sorry for using that term, authentic Judaism, as seen in the Torah, actually rejects that. It doesn't say everyone has a right to their opinion. There's actually a Sanhedrin, one of the elders. They make a decision, they decide law. Other people can't just say, this is what I want. And part of what I try to show in the passage is how Eloh as a concept evolved in different places and how it was really particularly a kind of a preparation for the Jews leaving Israel, you know, getting close now to Tisha Part of what's mourned on Tisha B'Av is not just the temple disappearing, but no longer having a judicial system that can decide things. And once you don't have the judicial system, then anybody can say anything that they want and perhaps feel a certain authority to do that. But that was not necessarily what actually took place when we had a, uh, a, a nation. So therefore, I, I would actually go so far as to say that, that the Jews as a nation needed a legal, you know, we needed a Supreme Court. But once we were no longer a nation and really became a religion without a country, at that point we needed much more to be able to adapt in different places and different ways and uh, people have the authority to say different things.
3: With the timing of the book, uh, it came out in 2020, which of course is a tumultuous time for the world uh, with a with pandemic. Um, I wonder, are, were there anything that came out from the book which – is particularly relevant to the pandemic or or things that from the pandemic helped you think about these stories in the book? Is there any connection that can be made between what's written here and and what we've been going through in the world? Well, other than
1: crowns and corona, which uh, you can then say anything you want about that, but actually I had completed the book three years before it being published. It was already submitted and there was a backlog with the publisher. So there was nothing written in the book that dealt with the pandemic itself. Everything everything was for, I actually have a book coming out now, which that would be a much better question. How sitting at home, you know, for days and weeks, months and, you know, on end, and then writing just sitting by myself with a lot less of an interaction and in what was produced then. So that you're going to have to come back to me in a couple of years and and say, hold it, you know, what, what about that particular work? But on the other hand, I do think that a lot of people sitting at home had an opportunity to read and, uh, The book actually sold very well, or it's been selling very, very well. And I've had phenomenal feedback from people, educators, lay people, who have just felt a a companion. They they felt something they were able to dig into deeply and and had this uh, not just intellectual, but also an emotional connection to it. That's been probably part of the most meaningful responses that I had, is that people both felt and understood a connection with this book. It was intellectual and emotional.
3: And have you seen any differences between the American audience or North American audience who has been reading and receiving the book versus an Israeli audience? It's in English, of course, but I'm sure there's Israeli readers of the book as well. Any differences between them, or are pretty standard across the board?
1: I couldn't say that, but I I, I think most of the readers have not been in Israel. Are there any? My kids or Israeli haven't read the book. (laughs)
3: Okay. Are there any plans for, for it to be translated or for it to be in, in Hebrew or not, not currently? There is
1: talk about – I've, I've been approached about various languages. Someone very much wants to have it translated into Spanish. There's somebody else wants to translate it into French. And uh, the idea of Hebrew is something I would very much want to do. But uh, there are plans – there are thoughts but not plans. Let me put it that way.
3: I'd love to, to go back to something we were talking about before in regards to the the approach that, that you take. So if we, if we look for example, at chapter six about Alicia Ben Benefuya, the rabbi who went astray, there, there are, as you discussed, there are different stories, different origin stories for for his heresy and, and for him becoming this wayward rabbi who went astray. So I'd love for you to, to elaborate a bit to, to the approach you took. so, Do do we just learn different things from each origin story? Do we try to bring them all together to have one story for for what he became and and how he became who he was? Or do we really take messages from each one separately?
1: I think the first thing you need to do is to read each story independently by itself, not read the other story into it because that will – prevent you from properly understanding it. So therefore, the first thing is to read the different stories. Those who don't understand or don't know, one story is in the Babylonian, the other is in Jerusalem Talmud, and while there are similarities, at first glance, at least, they look very, very different. So part of what I was doing constantly with them was again, reading the text and then also understanding at which point was their metaphor being used, at which point are their symbolic issues being used, and at which point were they trying to tell me something deeper. I believe that the two stories are different stories telling a very common story. I also think that the Babylonian story, which is maybe told from with a little bit of a distance, being told where the victims are are far away, both geographically and historically, are going to be very, very different from in the land of Israel, where I think people still suffered from things that he did. If you're going to ask me which one I think is more historic, I think that the Jerusalem Talmud story is more historic, and it's much more grounded on earth. The events take place on earth, while a bit of or some of the Babylonian story from the very beginning takes place up in heaven. And it's just interesting to note how the same ideas are being expressed. So, for example, in the Bavli, the Babylonian story, it takes place while he's up in heaven, and he has this mystical experience, what's called pardes, and there he makes a theological error, and he hears his voice saying that, every, you know, return my mischievous children, other than ather, and that starts a whole other question, is that he's told he can't return, or told, or just he's not invited which means everyone has has an invitation, or he just can't. On the other hand, the way that same story is being told in the Jerusalem Talmud is that he hears that voice while he wanders into the temple which was destroyed, and uh, he hears it on Yom Kippur, which happens to be on Shabbat, while he's riding on his horse and trampling on the place the temple had stood. And part of the idea which I felt was a core behind it was the way it's described in the Babylonian Talmud as dualism, he believes there's two different powers, but the way it's really being told in the Jerusalem Talmud is that there's two two different powers, but not in terms of divinity as much as in terms of the, in terms of Judaism and, and Rome. So therefore, the core of dualism is there in both stories, but it's being expressed slightly different. But there is this uh, experience, whether it's in heaven or whether it takes place on the, te- in, on the Temple Mount, becomes very interesting, especially if one understands what early mysticism thought about the Temple and what's called the Heichalot and, uh, and so on, which means I don't believe these are absolutely two different stories. I do believe that the same story with differences being told in uh, using different metaphors.
3: We, we've looked and discussed a few different stories that you have in the book, and we've talked about some of the sources and the types of sources that, that you're looking at. I, I would enjoy to have a little conversation or maybe some some tips and tricks you can give. So people, they've got your book, they can read it, they can see your sources, they, they can read about the discussion and, and learn a great deal. But someone could also be approaching a Talmudic Agada a Nagadah on their own, and they want to read it, they want to understand it. What's the approach? What would you recommend? What what do they do? How do they read the text? How do they gain meaning? And and how do they get a proper understanding of of what they're reading?
1: I think the first stage is make sure you get all the words right. (laughs) You know how to read. The second stage is to listen to the words, not just the words right, but the tone of voice which is being used as it's being read, which means the tone of voice itself is going to give you a great deal of interpretation so so it's almost like a song and to listen to the music of the text itself don't just read it and you know you got it go read it a couple of different ways read it again it's the it's almost in a sense like somebody's reading a love letter and uh and but for those young people people used to write to one another and uh, not just voice messages, and you get this letter, and you haven't seen the other person, and now you, just, you you read you read it quickly, and then you go back and you read each word, and you parse each word, and you try to understand well, what was the meaning of that word, how was it being said, what was the tone of voice being used over here, and I think that that's a level of interpretation is to listen to the tone of voice being used. The second, the next stage would probably be is to say, okay, what's the problem over here? Did everything make sense, or are there difficulties? And not just, I think that sometimes we're trained to ignore. Difficulties. Oh, that's you no. Know, just everything makes sense, and then just move on to the next page. Which, you know, I mentioned Daphyomi before. That's one of the problems: is that we don't have time to really delve into all of the serious issues, but rather to note: are there problems here? Are the problems one of understanding? Are the problems in terms of this particular context? Are the problems in terms of how does this fit into other information that I know? And then to start comparing and taking looks in other places. At that point, I would start to look at commentaries and to see, are they noticing the problems which I've noticed? Are they suggesting solutions? There's some commentaries which I felt, and again, this is a very biased on, on my part, I felt noted the questions, although the answers they gave required you to enter into their world. For example, the Ben Yohayada, the Ben Ish-hai, I felt him to be a very, very sensitive reader of texts, but in order to accept his answers, you had to enter into his Kabbalistic world. So it could be that his questions are very valuable, again, on the level that I wanted to approach things, while the Kabbalistic responses were not ones which I necessarily embraced. Although, if you would have noted, there were times that I, uh, that I said what he said, although I felt that I wanted to try to get to what I would call the pshat of the agada and not just to try to get to some other idea. So, for example, the, the Maharal, on the other hand, you have to completely enter into his world to read and to appreciate what he's saying. And therefore, what I would try to do is to, again, understand the problems and then start looking into other sources or other places or other ideas that I felt can shed light on this. But the first part always had to be the reading, the reading correctly, the listening, and then noting, are there issues that need to be resolved? And once there were issues that need to be resolved, then to go a little bit deeper uh, into it.
3: You noted at the beginning that two of the formative influences, either on you or your parents, were Rabbi Soloveitchik and Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Were there any specific methods, ideas, things from them which, which helped you write the book, which influenced the way you wrote the book?
1: H- H- Heschel, I would say, is much more incidental because my, my mother took one class with him, and it's not read or two, but it, w- it wasn't something which ever really came down to me. Rabbi Soloveitchik, on the other hand, was uh, a guest at our Shabbos table almost every single week. And to this day, if I give a class, or give a lecture, my father's there. It, it was good if I said what Rabbi Soloveitchik said, and if it's bad, if I, if, if, if I said something else, not bad, but not as good. So essentially, Rabbi Soloveitch, when I say he's our guest, I hope you understood that that meant that uh, he, was, uh, he was cited, he was quoted, and, uh, and it, he was somebody who was a, a, a constant source of, uh, of inspiration. And I also added that I was privileged to be able to study with him. So therefore, I did take from him some of the methodology. and He, he was an incredible reader of texts as was His Son and Laura by Lichtenstein as well. So what I took from these people was, again, I'm not even going to begin to claim that I can do what they could do, but I did learn how to ask the right questions and how to, again, listen and, and analyze a text, at least to the extent that I'm able to.
3: I want to make sure that I cover everything that I can. Of course, I want people to also buy the book. So I'm trying to strike that balance. But is there anything that I haven't mentioned, we haven't discussed that you would love to, to get into?
1: I think that the book itself could be understood on various levels. And uh, as I said from the beginning, that some people can just read it and I think that they'll learn. You correctly noted that some of the stories are really popular and therefore they can get a little bit more insight into those stories. But uh, it's the kind of thing that two people can sit and have a chavruta with. They can sit and learn this book together. And, it's a kind, and I've been told that there are people doing this and I've been told that there are people who are using this to give lectures to, uh, to larger audiences. And uh, that it was written for that purpose. It was, again, all those footnotes and endnotes were put in that people can sound smart and, <laughs> and be able to give a lot more information and make things come alive. I very much tried to make the ideas and the people come alive. And I tried to look for agadot which dealt with some contemporary issues as well, even though you'd say, hold it, how is that possible? These are things that happened thousands of years ago. But human nature doesn't really change. And there were things within it, especially dealing with issues of tshuva, of of repentance and man's relationship with God. As I said, there were various chapters about that. And I think those chapters were ultimately, even though there were some parts of it which were challenging, I think they were ultimately uplifting. I think that uh, the the idea that we can change, that we can fix things, and the world isn't broken and we're not broken. And if we are broken, there's healing that can take place. And I think that I laid out a number of paths for that to take place and possibilities for that to take place which again I hope that people uh, are uh, able to uh, to utilize
3: and now that you you finally come out with the book on Agada are there other books you want to write on Agada as well and you know now that you got this first one out eh?
1: I have another book on Agada, mostly completed you, again you already heard me say it took three years of production for this book to you know for the book to come out I have another book. On the Agadot of the Chorban, of the various things that deal with uh, the destruction of the temple. So that's a very depressing book, obviously, which is, uh, I guess, it's appropriate for a certain time of year. And, you know, we, we pray that it will no longer be appropriate. And maybe one day people will look at a book like this and say, wow, I can't believe people used to study these things. And uh, we get past all of that. But it's, uh, it's something which I invested in a, l- a lot of time, a lot of energy in uh, this book. And uh, I don't know how much time it will take to come out. Meanwhile, I've uh, worked on other things. I've, I just now wrote a monograph, which is completely different from this, which deals with history and halacha, which is a- as different as you can get from, uh, from this book. And uh, I also completed another volume on, uh, on the book of Bereshit, which uh, hopefully will be coming out before the next cycle.
3: Thank you very much for that. We've already heard about a number of projects you've been working on, have worked on uh, subsequent to this book, but still want to ask that famous uh, question that we ask at New Books Network, which is, what are you working on next?
1: Well, this monograph that came out is part of a larger project, which I don't know how long it's going to take me. But what I'm calling it, at least for myself right now, as I'm working on it, is Halacha for an Imperfect World. Because I think a lot of people write halacha Jewish law, they write it for a perfect world and what you know, what we should be doing or should ascribe to be doing or try to be doing or it should be our goals, aspirational. And we just unfortunately don't live in that world. We live in a real world which is full of challenges and difficulties. And I want to write more about various challenges, legal, ethical challenges which come up and how Jewish law has grappled with them and how we can grapple with them. And as I said, completely different. And I find writing about legal issues very, very different from writing about philosophical or theological issues. And uh, it's been slow going, but I hope uh, to make progress on this.
3: Very nice. I look forward to reading it. Thank you so much. We've been talking to Rabbi Ari Khan, author of The Crowns on the Letters, published in 2020 by OU Press and Ketav Publishing House. Happy reading, my friends.